You are listening to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to tune in today. Hey, joining me on today's program is my special guest, Mr. Dan Pila. Uh, Dan is the author of the Small Business Tax Guide, so we have a little bit different program for you today. I uh, really enjoyed my conversation with Dan, and uh, the conversation I'm having with him today is really going to be beneficial for any taxpayer, uh, not just business owners. So you'll want to stay tuned for that. And you know, if you have been a regular listener to the program, uh, you know that as recently as last week, we talked about this strong correlation that exists between the Federal Reserve's expanding balance sheet and the continued rise of stocks. Now, if you're a newer listener and you might not be familiar with what the term expanding the Fed's balance sheet might actually mean, let me put it in easy-to-understand terms. It simply means the Fed is printing money. In fact, when you hear the terms, the Fed is expanding its balance sheet, or the Fed is engaging in bond purchases, or the Fed is pursuing policies of quantitative easing, it all means exactly the same thing. It means the Fed is printing money. And when you study history, which we are tremendous fans of doing, you find that this pursuit, this policy pursuit, I should say, never ends well. And once the practice starts, it's a very slippery slope and it's extremely difficult to stop. But the practice can't go on forever. But when you take a look at the reality of the finances, and I did some research this past week for a presentation that I gave, and the numbers are simply staggering. I thought I'd share them with you on this week's program. The current national debt is $23 trillion. It's actually more than $23 trillion. Now, an organization called Statista reports that 55% of American households pay income tax. The same organization also reports that there are 128 million U.S. households. So take 128 million times 55%, and you find that about 70 million households pay income tax. Now, simple math has us concluding that if we take the $23 trillion and divide by the number of households that actually pay tax, the share of the national debt per tax-paying household is about $328,000. But it doesn't stop there. The most recent Social Security Program trustee report stated that Social Security is underfunded by about $43 trillion. That's an additional liability per taxpaying household of about $614,000. Now, Richard Fisher, who is a former member of the Federal Reserve Board, in a speech stated that Medicare was underfunded by about $85 trillion. That's an additional liability per taxpaying household of more than $1.2 million. So what happens if we add all those numbers together? Let's take the share per taxpaying household of the national debt and the liability to shore up Social Security and Medicare. We get a liability per taxpaying household of more than $2.1 million on total debt and liabilities of more than $150 trillion. 
Now, I hate to pour cold water on some of you who may be supporting a particular political candidate who suggests raising taxes on a particular class of people. The Brookings Institute reports that total household wealth in the United States is $118 trillion. Compare that to the $150 trillion plus in liabilities that we just talked to, and you don't have to be a math major to figure out that 100% of household wealth could be confiscated and the national debt and the liabilities of Social Security and Medicare could not be met. Now, since fiscal problems of this magnitude cannot be solved through increased taxes, politicians and policymakers have two other choices. They can cut spending or they can print money. My question to you is which will they choose? Well, I think that they will continue to print. I'm not hearing any politician who's trying to get elected to a higher office suggest that we cut spending across the board to make up for this national debt and the underfunding. I'm hearing exactly the opposite. I'm hearing deficit spending and quantitative easing and negative interest rates. But the printing, as I started talking about in this segment, cannot go on forever. Herbert Stein was an economist who said, if something cannot go on forever, it will stop. Now, as simple as that sounds, it is profound. Now, this past week, uh, a investment banker, Mr. Albert Edwards, commented on this practice, and he also forecast what's next in his view. Now, Mr. Edwards is a strategist for the largest investment bank in France, and he stated that he believes the Fed's fondness for, and I'm quoting, pouring more and more liquidity into the markets will ultimately lead to a deflationary bust. Now, again, if you're a new listener, pouring more and more liquidity into the market simply means printing money. There's a lot of ways to say that, actually. He says that pouring more and more liquidity into the markets will ultimately lead to a deflationary bust. And when the bust occurs, Mr. Edwards predicts the Fed will turn to negative interest rates to try to recover. Now, In a letter to the bank's clients, Edwards called the Fed's actions a new level of fiscal debauchery for the U.S. that won't stop. Now, if you've been listening to this program for any length of time, you obviously know that I agree. Now, Mr. Edwards' comments were published in an article on money and markets this past week. And I'm going to give you just a bit from that article. I'm quoting, And when the crash comes, Edwards predicts the only thing the Fed will be able to do is engage in negative interest rate policy. Many times when you see negative interest rate policy written about, there is an acronym, NIRP, that's used. Edwards says this in the article, I'm now more convinced than ever that the coming deflationary bust will take the U.S. 30-year bond yield below zero. 
I'm also convinced that helicopter money will be the chosen way out of this deflationary quagmire, especially as it becomes increasingly clear that there is now no way left to revert to reverse every government's exploding fiscal liabilities. The ice age is nearing the end. Looking around the world, negative interest rates are now the norm in Japan and parts of Europe. Around 11 trillion of global sovereign debt is yielding in the negative currently. And U.S. President Donald Trump has blasted the Fed in the past for not being more open to trying negative interest rate policy. Edwards thinks that modern monetary theory, also known as helicopter money, is inevitable as well, which backers of the policy believe is okay to use as long as inflation doesn't balloon out of control. Now, in the last segment of today's program, I want to reconcile this for you because on the surface, it's probably hard to reconcile money printing with a deflationary bust that sees many asset prices, particularly financial asset prices, plummet. See, when you think of money printing or money creation, inflation is the anticipated outcome in the minds of most people. Now, technically defined, deflation is a contraction of the money supply. So if the Fed is continuing to print, how can we have a deflationary bust? That's counterintuitive. How can that happen? Won't we have massive inflation if the Fed continues to print? I'm going to talk about that and reconcile that for you in the last segment of today's program. But before I get to my next segment with Mr. Dan Pila, I want to talk to you a bit about some resources that are available. We have an educational event that we're doing the last week of this month in the Grand Rapids area. If you'd like to learn more about these topics that we talk about on the program, if you'd like to learn of strategies that you might be able to use to protect yourself, and if you'd like to learn how to maximize your Social Security benefits, I would encourage you to go check out the website, socialsecuritydinner.com. The website, again, is socialsecuritydinner.com. You can register for our upcoming event or get more information. I'll be back with Mr. Dan Pila. You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. I am pleased to have joining me on the program this week, first-time guest, Mr. Dan Pila. Uh, Dan is the author of The Small Business Tax Guide, The Complete Guide to Organizing and Operating Your Small Business. And uh, you can learn more about Dan's work at his website, which is TaxHelpOnline.com. The website, again, is TaxHelpOnline.com. I'll mention that again uh, in this segment as well. Hey, Dan, welcome to the program. Hey, Dennis, thanks for having me. Well, Dan, let's just jump in. Um, you identify in your book uh, some common mistakes that small businesses make. So give us an example of some tax mistakes that maybe a business would make. Yeah, sure. I, I think one of the number one problems that we have with small businesses involves uh, this worker classification issue. And what I mean by that, Dennis, is you know it's very expensive to have employees. And so what small businesses often do 
when they start to transition away from the you know the mom and pop type structure uh you know one person or or, or two family p- uh, members doing the work is they start to look for employees but you know what employees carry a tremendous cost and so small businesses typically want to try to use independent contractors to do the work that they need done the problem with that Dennis is that independent contractors have to meet certain specifications in order to be legally considered to be independent and what happens is, is small businesses don't understand the nuances of the difference between an employee and an independent contractor and then what happens is the IRS comes along behind that and they say oh no all these people you paid as independent contractors really should have been treated as employees and now we're going to reclassify these workers hence the reclassification uh, uh, appellation that applies here we're going to reclassify these workers from independent contractors to employees and now guess what you owe all the back taxes that should have been paid on the employees quote-unquote wages even though you didn't treat them as wages and this is a monster problem for small businesses particularly in light of the fact that the IRS has, has waffled quite a bit on its own rules regarding what constitutes an independent contractor or not. So I've got a great deal of discussion in the book on this issue to help small businesses distinguish between a legitimate employee and a legitimate independent contractor and how to make sure that you don't run afoul of the IRS's rules on this topic. And you know, Dan, I'm, I'm, I look at the number of people out there today that are uh, working part-time, um, assume, assumingly or allegedly as an independent contractor, driving for Uber and Lyft, um, that's essentially a small business. And uh, as I recall, there was uh, some question as to whether or not those people are, were employees or independent contractors. At least some states were questioning that. Uh, can you speak to that? Yeah, exactly. What you're talking about is rules that California imposed uh, that essentially just unilaterally declared that all such workers were employees and not independent contractors. Now, that's a state rule, Dennis. It doesn't apply to the IRS. The IRS still has its own rules. But then, of course, now we've got the problem of, well, is the, you know, this person may be an independent contractor under federal law, but an employee under state law. So now what do you do if you've got this hybrid situation? So, so these states are really making it more and more difficult for businesses to to comply with the law and have have stability and guidance that means something in in terms of uh, in terms of this worker issue that's just another reason why it's so important to understand what the rules are on the front end yeah and dan if you were to just give us a short definition as to what's the difference between an employee and an independent contractor uh, what what would you say that that main difference is and how how can someone qualify as an independent contractor well, well it, it, Dennis, it all boils down, it really boils down to one word, and that is control. The, 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 the standard that the IRS uses and the things that the federal courts will use in measuring the question of employee versus independent contractor is control. And here's where they, here's where they point the word. Uh, it's pointed at who controls the workplace, who controls the worker, who controls the manner in which the work is performed. All right, if, if, if I've got a worker that is uh, performing services for my company and I require that worker as the, as the company that's paying for the service, if I require that worker to show up at a certain place at a certain time, do very specific work under my rules and my guidance and my uh, supervision, and, and, and they're required to use my tools and equipment, then that individual's an employee. And on the other hand, if the worker controls the, the, the 
controls himself, controls the work and the, and the place that the work is performed and the manner in which the work is performed, then that person is an independent contractor. That's really what it boils down to. And in the book, I give you a, a, a great number of examples and scenarios to show you the difference between an employee and an independent contractor. And the other thing that's critical here is, is almost, almost always we see companies that are hiring independent contractors basically on a handshake. Okay, well, that's all well and good, but the fact of the matter is that you know one of the elements of whether you've got a legitimate contractor relationship is whether there's a contract. You know, do you have something in writing to demonstrate that you've got this contract relationship? Well, well, I'll tell you this as a matter of law, the, the, the fact that you don't have a contract doesn't mean that you don't have a contract relationship, but it does indicate uh, a, 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 a looseness of details, a, a failure to comply with the, you know, with the details. Whereas if you do have a written contract that specifies very clearly these elements of control, that goes a long way toward proving that you've got a legitimate independent contractor. And certainly, uh, whenever you're dealing with with any matter, but I'm particularly with the IRS, documentation uh, makes a lot of sense. If it's not written down, a lot of times they think it didn't happen. Um, yeah, you're exactly right. And in fact, that's one of the critical points that I make throughout the book, The Small Business Tax Guide, is that the burden of proof, Dennis, the burden of proof is on the taxpayer. All right. The IRS never has to prove you did it wrong. You have to prove you did it right. So if we're talking about an independent contractor situation, the IRS will step in and, and just simply declare that these workers are employees, not independent contractors, and they put the burden of proof on you, the business owner, to prove that they are, in fact, independent contractors. And this, I'm telling you, this messes people up because people do not realize that they've got the burden of proof, number one. Number two, they don't know how to carry that burden of proof. And number three, they simply do not have the records or the documents necessary to carry the burden of proof, even if they did understand how to go forward with it. So if you learn nothing else from this book, you're going to learn that you've got the that, that you've got the burden of proof in these cases and how to meet that burden. That's the key thing. Well, we're chatting today with Mr. Dan Pila. Dan's book is the Small Business Tax Guide. You can learn more about Dan and his book and his work at TaxHelpOnline.com. Hey, uh, Dan, you know we have a number of listeners that uh, maybe are retiring from their first career and they're starting a second career in consulting relating to what they did during their career. And uh, they're actually going to be working as independent contractors. And I know in the book you address, um, you know, should I have an LLC? Should I have a subchapter S? Maybe if I work with somebody, should I have a partnership? What type of a business entity should somebody be looking at just from a tax standpoint? Well, that's a good question, and, and, and you're exactly right. The book has a chapter in it that deals with, with uh, all of the eight uh, um, uh, different bent business entities that a person can use to operate under, whether it's a sole proprietorship, S-Corp, LLC partnership, the whole litany is listed there. And, and there's, there's no one answer. It's not a one-size-fits-all thing. And this is a warning to folks that are starting their businesses because very often accountants will say, well, you need to be an LLC, and they'll give that answer to everybody. Or you need to be an S-Corporation, and they'll give that answer to everybody. But it's not one-size-fits-all. What I do is I explain each one of the eight different entities entities, 
how each one operates, I explain the pros and cons of each entity, and perhaps most importantly, I explain to you what the compliance requirements are for each one of those entities. So you can compare them side by side, and based on what your needs are and what your business considerations are, your non-tax business considerations, you can make the best decision for you based on the facts and circumstances. And that's a key thing, because most people end up in entities they don't understand and that really aren't helping them that are only making matters worse from a compliance standpoint. You know, I think a lot of people get into business uh, on on the basis that I talked about, that they're doing some consulting, maybe they have an assistant, and uh, they they automatically just go set up an LLC, like you say, that seems to be the, the, the at least in, in my world, the entity that's most often recommended by attorneys. Are LLCs overprescribed in your view? Yeah, I think they are. I think they're overprescribed for sure. Uh, you know, particularly an LLC that's treated as a as an S corporation, because now you get into a hybrid situation where you're actually doing two different structures at once. And here's what the problem is, and I talk about this in the book at length. If you've got a, if you've got an LLC that's taxed as an S corporation, what that means is that. Uh, as an officer performing services or a member performing services for the corporation, that individual has to draw a salary from the corporation, right? He's got to pay himself a salary. And most business owners don't realize that they have to pay themselves a salary. And not only that, the salary has to be commensurate with the fair market value of the services. In other words, what would you have to pay somebody, uh, some independent third party to come into your business to do the job you're doing? That's the salary you have to draw. And the reason for that, a Dennis, is because the IRS is going to say, well, we're entitled to our Social Security tax, that wage payroll tax on that money that you're being paid because an officer or or shareholder performing services for a corporation is a statutory employee and must draw a salary. And I'm telling you what, this is a huge problem. I see business after business after business that that is in trouble because of this one problem right here. So for anybody that's considering a small business, you need to you need to know what these rules are and how they work. And you know, Dan, I have seen uh, a number of uh, business owners uh, just in, in in talking to them that uh, have gone to their accountant and they have a, a business that maybe is generating a hundred thousand dollars a year in in profits, and they're taking a thirty thousand dollar salary and a seventy thousand dollar dividend payout with the blessing of their accountant to avoid the the, the social security and the Medicare tax. Uh, is that just a huge red flag? Is that just a problem waiting to happen? Yeah, yeah, it really is a problem waiting to happen. Now, it, 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 there's no magic math formula, Dennis, that says it's got to be 50-50 or 60-40 one way or 70-30 the other way. That's not it. The key is what type of services are you performing for the business that might constitute uh, what I call in the book, what I refer to in the book is busy work, right? Filing and mailing and, and these types of things that you could bring somebody in from the outside to do. And what would you have to pay that person to do it? All right. So we identify and quantify those types of things. And then to the extent that you're reaping profits on the brain work, which you're certainly entitled to do, there's no question that you've got the right to reap profits on the brain work that would constitute uh, dividends uh, to the extent that you're getting those, those would not be subject to the self-employment tax. But here again, get back to the magic formula here in dealing with the IRS. Who's the burden of proof on? The burden of proof is on you. So if the IRS comes along and says, okay, you've claimed $70,000 of distribution against $30,000 of wages, we think it's the other way around. 
Well, you've got to prove it's not. The burden of proof is on you to prove that the $30,000 is reasonable. How are you going to do it? I'm telling you, Dennis, most people will fail every time if they don't know what these rules are and what the procedures are for, for proving your case. Well, our guest today is Mr. Dan Pila. The website is taxhelponline.com. His book is The Small Business Tax Guide, and I'll be continuing my conversation with Dan when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. I'm Dennis Tubergen. You're listening to RLA Radio. I have the pleasure of chatting today with Mr. Dan Pila. Uh, Dan is the author of the book, Small Business Tax Guide. You can learn more about Dan and his book and his work at taxhelponline.com. And uh, Dan, when the clock so rudely interrupted at the end of last segment, we were talking about uh, people that maybe retire from their first career, start a second career, and uh, talked about different business entities that they might think about. Uh, you know, and a lot of these people, when they when they retire and start a second career and do consulting, they set up an office in their home. And when it comes to the deductibility of a home office, I'm sure many of the listeners have heard that's a huge red flag. Don't even bother to claim the deduction because it's a guaranteed audit. What would you say to that? Well, first of all, I've heard that too, and I've heard that for years. I've been in this business over 40 years, and that's one thing that, that just comes up over and over again. You know, don't don't claim deductions that you might otherwise be entitled to because it'll red flag the you know red flag the IRS and they'll come after you. Well, you know, Dennis, nobody wants to paint a target on their chest, that's for sure. But the fact of the matter is, if you follow the rules with respect to home office or anything in the tax code for that matter, I don't care about an audit. I'm not concerned about an audit. The key is to prove that your deduction is correct. Listen, if you don't claim the deduction in the first place, you've already lost, right? If the deduction is legitimate and you can prove it, then what that means is you're not paying taxes that you don't owe. If you don't claim the deductions, it means you're paying taxes you don't owe. So when it comes to the home office deduction, if you qualify, you need to claim it. And, and that's just that's and, and, and in the, the small business tax guide, uh, I show you specifically what the rules are. Here's where people fall apart on the home office. All right, of course there's record keeping that's involved and I talk about that, but here's but here's the key. In order to qualify to deduct space used in your home for business, the space that you're using has to be used regularly and exclusively for business. Now note these terms, regular use, exclusive use, all right? So if you just sporadically, intermittently, with no kind of pattern, you know, use the den for an office, you know, maybe you did it one day this week and you didn't do it for three more months and then you, you know, you do it for two days in, you know, in the third month and then, you know, that kind of sporadic use is not regular. All right, so it's got to be regular. It's got to be an ongoing kind of a thing, kind of an activity. That's number one. Number two, the exclusive use is critical. All right, if you've got this spare bedroom that you're using for an office, it can't be an office during the day and a TV room for the kids at night. Even though the kids may be using the room in, in, uh, in non-business hours, the fact that they're using the room kills the deduction because it's got to be exclusive use. All right, you've got to be you've got to be using that space only for business, and when it's not being used for business, it can't be used at all. That's the key. So if you've got your if you've got a, a corner in the basement, let's say you've got a, a large basement and you've got a corner in the basement where you set up your desk, your chair, your file cabinet, and and uh, you know your telephone, that's okay. That's all well and good as long as that corner of the basement is not then also used to put the crib for the baby where you where, where you you know where you give naps to the baby during the day, right? That's the key to the to the to the home office deduction. 
in the book, I've got a flow chart because the, the, the rules can be a little, the rules can be a little tricky if you don't see them, you know, if you don't see them in front of your face. And so I built a flow chart, Dennis, that shows you exactly what the fact considerations are and, uh, and, and, and allows you to follow the arrow down to the bottom line of whether you get the deduction or not. And then I show you what records you have to keep in order to be able to prove that you're entitled to the deduction. Dan, uh, along the same topic, let's just uh, maybe move tangentially a little bit. Um, let's say someone is retiring from their first career, and now they're starting a second career, and it happens to be um, in maybe a, a hobby. Maybe they uh, grow hybrid flowers, and they want to turn it into a business, and maybe they don't make any money at it. Um, to what extent is it risky to write off losses uh, when you're when you're starting a business when maybe the business kind of looks like a hobby? Well, and that's a good question because that is an area of attack for the IRS as well. It's, it's in fact one of the one of the most litigated issues in the United States tax court every single year, Dennis is the question of profit motive with respect to business. And the reason is because if there's no profit motive, if you incur expenses in connection with a hobby or recreational activity, something that's done for personal pleasure or, or recreation or enjoyment, you can't claim a loss with respect to those activities. Now, you can claim expenses to the extent of the income. The IRS lies about this, but it's true that you can claim expenses to the extent of the income, but you can't claim a loss. So, for example, if you've got five thousand dollars worth of income and six thousand dollars worth of expenses, all right, you've got a one thousand dollar loss. You can't claim the thousand dollar loss, but the five thousand dollars of, of expenses can offset the five thousand dollars of income, all right? So, so that's what the rule is. But what the IRS does, and they do they do this every single time, is they disallow all the expenses and then continue to charge you tax on the income, which is a violation of the law. And I point this out in the book and and, and show you how to prove that it's a violation of the law. But the point is this. The key is what is your intent, all right? This boils down to the intent of the business owner. If you intended to pursue the activity for reasons of personal pleasure, recreation, or enjoyment, it's not a business, all right? It's a business if you engaged in it for the purposes of making a profit, <clears throat> all right? Now, whether or not you made a profit is not the question. The question is, did you intend to make a profit? Now, how do you prove your intent? Well, of course, that was going to be my question. That's a hard yeah. thing to prove. It is. It's a difficult thing to prove, and the IRS knows it's difficult to prove, and the vast majority of people in America don't know how to prove it anyway, and so that's where the IRS's attacks become successful is because people don't know how to prove it. In the book, I identify 12 specific objective facts that will help you prove the objective question of whether you intended to make a profit. All right. So, for example, did you have a marketing plan? Did you follow that marketing plan? Did you uh, take steps to educate yourself on how to be successful in your business? Did you keep books and records, not for tax purposes, but for uh, non-tax business purposes to figure out, for example, what strategies worked and what strategies didn't work? All right, are you emulating the tactics of other successful businesses in your same area? These are the types of factors that the IRS will look at and that the courts will evaluate to determine whether you got a profit motive. And I'm telling you, Dennis, as long as you check the boxes in these things, with your activities and your records to prove your activities, you're not going to lose this case. But if you don't check these boxes, there is no way you're going to prevail in an audit on the profit motive of your, of your business. Dan, let me shift gears just again, just, just a little bit. Uh, what if somebody has their own business, they're, uh, 
maybe doing some travel and they call it research and development and they're uh they're out and about, and they're they're taking a trip, and uh, at the end of the trip, they're tying in a couple of uh, business meetings. Um, what do they need to be doing to be able to deduct all or part of that trip, and what are the rules in those circumstances? Okay, and that's a good question, too, and, and we could really split that into two areas. We could split it into out-of-town travel, and we could split it into automobile, but let's talk about out-of-town travel. That's the sense I had from your question is, you know, somebody hopping on an airplane and going to Vegas, for example. Um, here, here's what the rule is. A, a business, a, a trip is deductible as a business expense. I'm talking about the transportation expenses and the hotel expenses, right? The related expenses of, of, of your, of your out-of-town travel are deducted, deductible if the primary purpose of the trip is business, right? So let, let's, let's say you're in the electronics business and you're going to go to Vegas for the electronics show. All right, and so you, you hop a plane, you go out Thursday night, uh, the uh, convention starts Friday, you're there Friday, Saturday, and then Sunday you come back. So you're there four days, and uh, at least two of those days, full days, you spent it at the, at the conference, you had, uh, you had a day of travel on the front end, a day of travel on the back end. All right, so that is a primary business trip. You're there primary, primarily for the activity of the conference, you spent most of your time at the conference, that business trip is deductible. The primary purpose was business. Now let's flip it around a little bit. Let's say where well, you're going to go to Vegas uh, just because you're going to go out with your, uh, with your spouse and you're going to have a weekend of it because you haven't gotten away for a while. And oh, by the way, there's uh, somebody on the other side of town that's a business associate that you really need to see anyway. All right. Now you've got one day out of four where there's some business activity. So in that situation, the primary purpose was not the business travel; it was it was it was recreation. However, how and so your 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 transportation expenses are not deductible. Your hotel expenses are not deductible. However, if you have to rent a car to go see that person, or if you take a cab or an Uber over to see that person, and you take that person to lunch, for example, and you've got a business meeting over lunch. Those specific expenses would be deductible, even though the transportation expenses are not. So the dividing line, the line in the sand, is the primary purpose of the travel. Was the primary purpose business, or was the tr primary purpose personal? That's the key. Well, Dan, it seems to me that uh, as I as I talk to you, and we're we're nearing the end of our time together here, but it seems to me that this all boils down to keeping really good records and having a really good system. So one, would you agree with that? And uh, two, what advice would you give just taxpayers in general about record keeping? Yeah, yeah, no question about it. It boils down to record keeping. And the fact of the matter is that two thirds of every single problem that small businesses have with the IRS in terms of audits and getting sideways as a result of audits is because they don't have adequate records. Two thirds of them. It's not about cheating on their tax returns or hiding income or, you know, misunderstanding the rules. That's not what the problem is. Two-thirds of the problem is record-keeping. And so you you got to understand what your burden of proof is. you got to keep the proper records to carry that burden of proof. I've got a, a chapter in the book that's dedicated specifically to record-keeping to show you how to do that. But then in every section of the book, like, for example, on the, uh, on the home office discussion, on the business travel discussion, in every section of the book, I've got a subsection in that chapter that deals with the burden of proof and how to carry it. So you've got the proper records. This is the key. You have the burden of proof. The most important lesson your listeners can get out of this discussion is they have to prove that their tax return is correct. 
Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Our guest today has been Mr. Dan Pila. Dan is the author of the Small Business Tax Guide. You can uh, learn more about the book or, uh, I believe, Dan, even order it, correct me if I'm wrong, at taxhelponline.com. Is that the case? Yeah, that's exactly right. Taxhelponline.com. There's no spaces of any kind. One word, taxhelponline.com. And anybody that orders a book off my website can get a free 15-minute consultation directly with me. So if you read the book and you got some questions, you can schedule an appointment to talk to me personally. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there. Our guest today again has been Mr. Dan Pila, and RLA Radio will return after these words. I'm Dennis Tuberg, and you are listening to RLA Radio. Welcome back. You know, in the first segment of today's program, I talked about some comments made by a strategist from the largest investment bank in France, and the gentleman's name is Mr. Albert Edwards. Now, Edwards says that all this money printing is going to lead to a deflationary bust. Now, I want to talk about that in this segment, because when you think about money printing, you think about inflation. And certainly if you've been to the grocery store, if you've been out to purchase anything, you know that certainly there is inflation. But deflation, technically defined, is a contraction of the money supply. So here's the question. And answering this question will give you some important clues as to what steps you might take with your 401k, with your IRA, with your investment assets in order to potentially protect yourself. So how can the Fed continue to print and the outcome be a deflationary bust? And here is the answer. And I'm surprised how many financially savvy people don't know the fact that I'm about to give you. See, many analysts will tell you and will confirm that more than 95% of money today is debt. In other words, it's only money as long as the borrower can pay back the debt. As soon as the borrower defaults or says, I can't pay the loan or refuses to pay the loan, it's no longer money. Now, here's an example that could have taken place about a decade ago to make the point clear. A banker loans a home buyer $200,000 to buy a $250,000 house. The home buyer signs a promissory note agreeing to pay the banker $200,000 over time per the terms of the promissory note. So, in other words, the buyer has a $200,000 mortgage. Now let's say that due to the hefty decline in home prices, the home buyer decides to move out of the house, let the bank have the house, and just default on the note. The bank has taken the home as collateral for the note, but now finds due to a decline in the value of real estate that the house is only worth $175,000 on the open market. The bank had $200,000 in cash and loaned it to the home buyer. Now, after selling the home for $175,000, the bank finds its assets have diminished by $25,000. What happened to that money? Well, it simply disappeared, or as we like to say, it went to money heaven. That's deflation. When you think about deflation, think about money disappearing and going to money heaven because most money today is debt 
most assets, there are many assets that people have, are only assets provided the person issuing the asset can make good on it. Well, a little more than a decade ago, many of you remember, we had a deflationary bust that saw the stock market crash. It was the second such crash within a 10-year time frame. The first crash saw the Federal Reserve reduce interest rates to around 1%. It had the desired effect. See, since money is loaned into existence, significantly lower interest rates resulted in more money and subsequently more money creation. Gradually, the Fed increased interest rates until they reached 5% in 2007, just in time for the next crash to hit. The Fed's response was once again predictable. They reduced interest rates, this time to zero. They assumed that that would encourage borrowing, and since money is loaned into existence, the economy would once again be jump-started, just like it was after the last crash. However, the desired outcome of more money creation did not happen. What did the Fed do? They began to print money. They engaged in a program of quantitative easing. They expanded their balance sheet. They engaged in asset purchases. Use whatever term you want to use. They printed money. And they used this newly created money to buy assets from banks. On and off for the past 10 years, the Fed has been chasing this policy. Most recently, since mid-September, the Fed has once again been expanding its balance sheet to keep the repo market, which is the overnight lending markets between banks, operating. And we've talked about that here on the program. Now, going back to what Mr. Edwards said, his point is the next crash will require an even more radical response than printing money to give to banks. It's his view that money will be printed and given to consumers. This is also known as helicopter money, which is a phrase that was coined by the late economist Milton Friedman. It simply means that large amounts of money are distributed to the public to stimulate the economy and get growth. Now, Edwards says this. You can call this helicopter money modern monetary theory. You can call it fiscal and monetary cooperation. You can call it whatever you like, but there's only one realistic way out of this mess, and that is for governments to inflate away their debts. Does anyone seriously believe that a democratically elected government would be willing to raise taxes or cut government spending and future pension and health benefits in a bid to delay the fiscal time bomb? Of course they wouldn't. Any government that attempts to do so will be hounded from office by an indignant public armed with pitchforks, and much else besides. Edwards is of the opinion that governments will not be able to resist a tool like helicopter money. He says this. He said, helicopter money will work for Joe Sixpack much more effectively than it will for Mike Moneybags, and so it will be much more widely popular. Once politicians have their hands on this policy tool, make no mistake, they will never hand it back to the central bank. Now, that's Mr. Edwards' opinion. However, a study of history seems to confirm his forecast. 100% of the time, historically speaking, 
disrespecting a currency destroys it. So what's my forecast? Well, I think you can look for negative interest rates here sooner than you might imagine. Once negative rates get here, or perhaps simultaneously to negative interest rates arriving here, you might see helicopter money. Now, when you see these policies appear, I have one bit of advice for you. I would thinking about getting tangible and maybe even tax-free with some of your investments. History teaches us that's how you not only survive, but can also potentially prosper. During the hyperinflation of the Weimar Republic after World War I, when the German government printed money and eventually destroyed the currency, those holding physical assets survived, and those with only paper assets perished. And there's certainly a lesson there. If you'd like to learn more, I'd encourage you to go to the website, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, and check out the resources there. You can also attend our upcoming educational event. You can go to socialsecuritydinner.com to get more information. That's socialsecuritydinner.com to register or get more information. That's my program for this week. Hope you got something you can use. Have a great week.